When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Big Football Show, a podcast by The Athletic about Big Ten football. Today is Wednesday, October 13th, and this is Scott Dockerman, and I write mostly about Iowa. Today I'm joined by national writer Matt Fortuna, and we discuss the league as a whole that includes the best and deepest division in college football, the East Division. Later on, we'll discuss the crazy Nebraska coaching search in 2003 with Huskers beat writer Mitch Sherman and national writer Max Olson. But first things first, how are you doing today, Matt? I'm great, Scott. They're, I'm, I'm honored to be joining such a distinguished show and distinguished conference on a week where they have five top ten teams. I feel like this is pretty big time. Yeah, I'm almost nervous now. I'm like, okay, so much uh, attention to this league. I better <laughs> uh, better bring my uh, cliche game, right? <laughs> <laughs> legends and leaders, as always. Legends and leaders. And for all you legends and listeners out there, I, I hope you're <laughs> as excited as I am to talk to Matt because uh, – Matt has a really good overview of, of the league and college football in general, and I wish uh, Notre Dame was part of it. Then I could really tap into your knowledge. <laughs> but uh, but uh, first things first, uh, we, we got to look at this uh, East Division here. Um, it's not an ex- it, This was not what I expected. I mean, Ohio State was clearly the best team in the, in the East last year. Michigan looked horrible. They were two and four. Michigan State two and five. Penn State lost its first five games last year, and here we are. All four of them are in the top ten, along with Iowa, which is ranked number two after beating Penn State last week. But, uh, you know, is this something that you uh, expected? And I'm not even saying top ten, but just to see the, the way that some of these teams rebounded and, and are now legitimate playoff contenders. No, absolutely not. And we could probably go team by team to explain how surprising each of their individual seasons have been to date. Um, but maybe Michigan State, absolutely not. I mean, I covered their opener at Northwestern. You're going to laugh at this, but Northwestern was the favorite in that game. And we've seen the way both teams have played so far this season, and that is a laughable uh, line, literally, when, when you look back at it. I mean, Michigan State, I didn't know what to expect from them. I definitely did not expect this. I mean, not the smoothest of debut seasons from El Tucker last season. Um, obviously, taking over a new program, Taking over a program that was on the decline and taking it over in the middle of pandemic, not ideal. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I don't judge him harshly for that. He did still beat Michigan, which will keep him in the good graces of his fan base regardless of what happens this year. But, um, you know, they had upwards of 20 people that they recruited through the transfer portal. And um, that's the way the world right now. That's different. Um, but it, especially with the young team, it makes it very hard to project how they're going to be in. Boy, have they, uh, for the most part, all come to play so far this season. I mean, Kenneth Walker, literally from the first play of the season, a 75-yard touchdown run. They did not have a rushing touchdown by the running backs 
all last season. And now they've got the guy who, at least on the Athletics Heisman straw poll, is, is the Heisman favorite um, halfway through the season so far. Uh, they've got two great receivers. Peyton Thorne has played very well so far at quarterback, but he's also a guy we didn't know was going to start until five minutes before kickoff of that opening night game against Northwestern. So when you talk about surprises with the Big Ten, obviously I was the number two team in the country. Penn State, Ohio State, I don't think are going anywhere in Michigan's Michigan, but um, like that's the biggest surprise to me, just how good they've looked. And, you know, much like Iowa last last week, and I don't mean this critically, like I think every good surprise season takes a little bit of luck or has one or two things that go your way that, you know, you probably don't go undefeated or have a great season without that happening. And, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot about Michigan State here as their schedule gets tougher. I mean, do they have any great wins? I wouldn't say they have bad wins. I mean, Nebraska is a good win despite the record. I mean, Nebraska probably should have won that game, but Michigan State won it. Um, I think the way they won at Miami is what impressed me. Um, they just thoroughly dominated them on both sides of the ball. Early start time in the heat there. That was very surprising to me. Um, I do wonder, though, I mean, so much of the talk about potential surprises entering this season centered around Indiana, which has been pretty much the opposite of that so far. Um If Indiana is any bit as good as we all thought they might be coming into the year, and I know circumstances are different now than they were in the preseason, like this is the game where that shows. This is the game where that depth of the Big Ten, Big Ten East in particular, shows. Like, is Michigan State a mature enough team to go into what is a pretty tough place to play against a good group of football players that are probably playing with a chip on their shoulder and not look past them because of their record, not look past them because their next game's against rival Michigan, who's also probably going to be undefeated, and, and take care of business. I mean, that's where I think you learn a lot about these teams. And to Michigan State's credit so far, much like last week against a tough Rutgers team, um, they've taken care of business so far. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement about Michigan State. I mean, going into this year, I almost wondered if they were going to be last in the division uh, because they lost to Rutgers last year. I th- Maryland showed some life, and it did earlier in the year, no question. And then uh, the way Indiana played last year, it was a ranked team and uh, second in the division and shut, I think, shut out Michigan State. If I'm maybe I'm, yeah, no, they did. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, Michigan State could be on the decline because their history before D'Antonio reminds, reminded me a lot of Illinois in some ways, where they had, you know, some peaks. You know, they go to the Citrus Bowl or they, you know, have a 10 win year. And then they next year they went four or five games and and just kind of this inconsistency. And then D'Antonio completely straightened it out. And now uh, Mel Tucker has done an amazing job. And I think in a league where you look at potential coaches of the year, and I think there are multiple candidates that, that fit that bill. I mean, including the one I cover. But I think more than anything, it's him because, you know, I, I saw him come to Kinnick last year and get beat 49 to Seven, and it really wasn't even that close. It was that bad. And um, but then they also beat Northwestern, and and I look at their schedule. Kind, of, it's it's similar in some ways to Iowa's in some respects, at least early on. And that is that they played they've played teams that we expected to be good or at least decent, and then they've all kind of fallen off. I mean, Miami had that you know, spectacular going into the season against Alabama and everybody's like, oh, this is going to be great. The turnover chain and everything. They got bombed there and then Michigan State bombed them and then everybody else has too. And uh, Northwestern won the West last year and Northwestern might be the worst team in the league, frankly. Uh, and then, you know, as you mentioned, Indiana this week, uh, they're, they've struggled. They've had some tough games 
Um, they've had to play three teams in the top 10 already, and, and they're not, clearly not that that level. But, yeah, they could be 7-0 and going uh, up to, you know, facing Michigan next week. And we're going, wow, okay. Uh, may, you know, and then we'll really know if they are uh, – or that's in two weeks, I'm sorry. But then we'll really know if they are Outback Bowl team or <laughs> legitimate uh, NY6 team. But uh, the, the Wolverines are kind of in the same boat in my eyes in some ways because last year when they lost to Wisconsin – that was, I, I thought they quit, frankly. I mean, it was like 39 to 11 or 49 to 11. And it was just horrendous that I could not believe that a Michigan team was out there trying to play that game. And and then at the end of the year, they ran into COVID issues. So, some not- some people from a certain four-letter network would say they quit on the season, but go on. Yes, and... <laughs> um, you know, there there might be some email evidence that he did, but uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> they uh, you know didn't play Ohio State. They were scheduled to play at Iowa in a crossover. Didn't play that one either. And um, I dare say they would have lost those games by a combined hundred points at the end of the year. And and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic on that. I think it's true. I think Michigan would have gotten beat probably seventy to ten by Ohio State and somewhere in the neighborhood of forty two to nothing by Iowa. And then, um, but then. Uh, this year, kind of wiped the slate clean. They have the talent. They always had the talent, and now they're they're playing well. They've won these games. They beat Wisconsin decisively, and 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 here they are. You know, kind of you know Nebraska. That was a tough place to play and a tough win. And and I'm looking at the Wolverines, going, "Am I a believer? I can't decide. I mean, what's kind of your impression of Harbaugh's latest uh, batch at uh, Ann Arbor?" Yes, I'm kind of on the fence with them as well. Um, Maybe that's like history and being burned by history so often where I'm just like, nope, not putting the cart before the horse just yet. It's a deep conference. They haven't played any of the best teams yet. I'll believe it when I see it. That's always, that's kind of been my default response entering every season with Michigan, right? I'll believe it when I see it. Even 2018, when, you know, they had one loss going into that finale against Ohio State and everyone was talking about them, the playoff team, I'm thinking, they got beat pretty thoroughly in week one by a Notre Dame team that was missing its two best offensive players. So I, I don't want to hear it. You know, I mean, I didn't see them getting run off the field against the Buckeyes the way it happened, but but I thought that team still had a lot of proving to do. And obviously this group does as well, particularly in this division. But I will say, coming off last year, which, I mean, you just recapped it better than I ever could, just, just awful year. Like, no way about it. You, you, only, only when you have an alum and a, a beloved alum as a coach, I think, can you – can you even finagle a way where, hey, we're not going to fire you, but you got to fire pretty much your entire staff and you got to take a huge pay cut? Like, that just doesn't happen in college football in 2021. It happened at Michigan because a legendary quarterback is their coach, and both of them are very vested in each other's success and want to see each other succeed. So they got that uh, done somehow. And they took care of business so far. I mean, the Rutgers game gave me a lot of pause just because we always see Michigan, good or bad team, good or bad Michigan teams, schedule a lot of home games early, and they always play dominant against the teams they should dominate. Um, and then they go on the road or they play a team that, that's, you know, of equal talent and they get exposed. And that hasn't happened yet. Have they played a team of equal talent? You could argue Nebraska was, and that environment certainly was challenging. And Nebraska um, – <laughs> Talk about a tough team to watch if you're a fan this year. I mean, this is a year where it looks like talent-wise, like 
I don't want to say they could be undefeated, but they could be undefeated. Oklahoma's the only game where they got beat and didn't beat themselves so far this season. So um, yeah, that's a game. I'm sure we'll get to this later. That's a game down the road where if I'm Iowa, that's the one that, that could really trip you up possibly um, on the road to a perfect season. But as far as Michigan, um, I didn't love the home performance against Rutgers. I did like what I saw at Wisconsin. Now, we've both probably seen enough of that Wisconsin team this year to know it's just not very good. But that's still a game that Michigan loses more often than not. They had not won in Camp Randall since 2001, and none of those games were particularly close. So that was a very big win, I think, for the confidence of this group. I think if we talk about Michigan as a team that could maybe win 10 games and go to a New Year's Six game, that's an appropriate conversation. If we're talking about them as a legitimate Big Ten title contender, I know they haven't lost a game yet, and that's still very much in front of them. But when I look at the remaining schedules, Michigan is on the road at Michigan State, Penn State, and Ohio State, and Ohio State gets those two teams um, at home, and Michigan State at home uh, as well this year. So I I just think at the end of the day, that thing's going to sort itself out, at least between those two teams. Yeah, they, they actually do get the Buckeyes at home. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but the other two are, are on the road. And, and that's that's kind of my my guess with Michigan is um, they, they've beaten teams. And this is what this makes this year really interesting and really hard to figure out is that a lot of the – probably because of the COVID year, we we don't know how good some of these teams are. I mean, when, when you think – Washington and what they've done over the last handful of years, as you know, since Chris Peterson took over them before he left, that you think, okay, that should be a pretty good team. They go to Ann Arbor, and it was just not even really a contest. And then Wisconsin, Michigan, you're expecting a certain image of a game, and and Wisconsin played poorly. I mean, Nebraska is, you know, I don't know what if they win a prize for this, but they're the best three and four team in, a, in the country, and. They, by the end of the year, they they hope to be the best six and six team in the country, um, you know, so they can at least get to a bowl game because they are, you know, they just found ways to lose games, and then of course in the opener against Illinois was one that'll make them sick for a long, long time because they clearly are the better program there. But uh, we didn't know that then, though that's for sure. But <laughs> um, as for the other two teams in the Big Ten beast. Um, Ohio State lost that game against Oregon, um, and it was really defensive, if anything else. Uh, you know, they had, what, 600 yards in total offense with C.J. Stroud out there throwing it around, and and yet uh, their defense couldn't stop them. Um, they have improved there, no question, but they still have to face, uh, you know, three tremendous or three very, very good teams, top 10 teams um, coming up, and then, and then if they get – through that, then they got to play probably Iowa, who has a great defense in the championship game. So what's kind of your faith in what the Buckeyes can do um, from here on out? I don't want to go so far as to say it reminds me of 2014 just yet, but um, I think we all thought coming into the year they probably wouldn't be good as they were last year, but they're still more talented than everyone else, and they had to pay the price for that um, youth, if you will, early on. But man, did they look good recently. I don't know if that's just because of competition. I don't know if that's because they figured some things out on both sides of the ball. But, I mean, they still put uh, the fear of God into everyone else in that, in that division. Absolutely. I mean, I was talking to some coach uh, from another team last night, and he said, look, like they, they've got uh, – Trey Henderson's going to be the best running back the Big Ten scene since Saquon Barkley, and they're finally figuring that out and relying on him as a true freshman. They've got three, two or three Jahan Dotsons at receiver – 
and they've got really good quarterback play and above average offensive line. Now, the defense is where most of the issues have stemmed from. They've gotten better on that side of the ball so far this season. Probably good enough to win out, and that may be a stretch to say halfway through the season when they've looked flawed so far, but um, getting Penn State at home, very, very important. Getting Michigan State at home, very, very important. Michigan, I mean, again, we, we, we just talked them up really well. I'm not ready to put Michigan in that category of the Ohio State just yet, given everything we always see uh, happens when those two take the same field together. Uh, I still think it's a really good football team. Um, I would be surprised, frankly, at this point, if they don't win out in the regular season and face Iowa in the Big Ten title game, which will be very, very interesting because there could be implications for both those te- playoff implications for both those teams, depending on what else happens throughout the rest of the country. Uh, but they definitely seem to have turned a corner, and that's a team that I think by November no one's going to want anything to do with. Oh, I think you're right. Um, I, everybody recognizes the talent that they have, and it's it's whether it was going into last week's uh, three versus four game with Iowa and Penn State, everybody kind of knew, hey, if you're still going to pick a favorite, who do you think from the Big Ten is going to win it? Get to be the number, you know, at least get into the playoff for sure. I think everybody would have voted for Ohio State just because that talent. Um, teams can beat them. I think Oregon proved that. I, I mean, I think you know Iowa has proven it in the past. Penn State it can compete and all that. But uh, do you bet on that? I don't know. I don't. I mean, you'd have to have a really good day in certain areas, and I think it, that's. It reminds me. Of, I mean, sorry. No, Alabama losing. Does anyone think less of Alabama? Does anyone want to play Alabama? No, they're like they still control their own destiny. Now, Georgia's probably a bigger threat to them than Iowa, maybe to Ohio State, but like that's no one's thinking less of Alabama after they lost last week. Like no one wants to play them. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, kind of getting to the uh, game that I covered last week, that was uh, that was pretty impressive. Um, I think for both teams in some ways, but. Uh, and that's Penn State. And going into that game, I thought that these are this game was really important for two different reasons because they're in different divisions. For Iowa, it was important because I thought a loss to Penn State at home would probably derail their playoff opportunities if they, you know, even if they won the Big Ten, it might be tough just because, well, they only played one team in, in, in the regular season that matched up and, and they lost that game. Uh, but for Penn State, it removes any mulligans for the regular season because if they go to Columbus and lose and, you know, they might be 10 and 2 and the best 10 and 2 team in the country, they're not getting in. And, and so I, I think in, in some ways, I, I feel <laughs> that that's probably the case that. If Penn State wins out, Penn State's in the playoff. But if Penn State loses one more game, it's just going to be hard for them to jump a uh, an Oklahoma, even with one loss, or an Oregon, or Cincinnati, even with, if it's undefeated. And and so they kind of remove their margin of error. But I still think this is a really good team, especially defensively. I think they are outstanding. And um, what's kind of your impression of the Nittany Lions, and where do they kind of stand in the in the Big Ten East race? Yeah, I think that that game turned out about as well as you could hope for if you're a fan of the conference and if you are holding out hope for the conference to get multiple playoff teams in because that's probably only going to happen if they come from two different sides of the division and Iowa is clearly the, the, the threat in the West to make the playoff. And if Iowa lost that game, I don't know if they can recover from that playoff-wise the way that Penn State could. And you throw in the fact that Penn State, frankly, looked like the better team at full health 
and lost by three with a backup quarterback who'd never played before in that environment. Uh, they don't get a mulligan for that loss, but I do think if they win out, they'll like 12 1 Penn State with their only loss at Kinnick with a backup quarterback by three points, they're getting in. So I, I think, big picture wise for the Big Ten, that was about as good of a result in terms of the way it played out as you could hope for. And th- this is a good team. I mean, I did not think going, going in, I was Iowa was like, what, one or two point favorite, right? Very, very small, but um, which surprised me. I mean, as well as Penn State have played so far. Um, I thought Iowa was going to win that game by at least a touchdown, and that was at full health. Obviously, it did not play out that way, was not playing out that way um, when Sean Clifford was in there. Um, it was a good team, uh, but they got to recover. They got to get healthy at the quarterback position, um, and they got to continue to play strong defense, which you know I think they got asked to go to the well one too many times against a program that has basically made a habit of, you know, that, that old saying, right? You, you hit the rock 99 times, nothing happens. The hundredth, it splits open. Like that's Iowa football in a nutshell, especially in 2021. And it was a perfect confluence and timing of events for Iowa to, to escape there with a the victory. Um, Penn State's got Illinois next coming out of the bye week. I think we all have an idea of how that one will go. But, um, you know, that two weeks from now, or two and a half weeks from now, October 30th, uh, now, there's a chance we're talking about all these teams in different light when you look at that schedule. Penn State's got to go to Ohio State. We'll, we'll, I mean, Penn State's either going to be in the playoff race or they're not after that one way or another. Same with Ohio State. If they were to lose, I think they're out of it. Michigan's got to go to Michigan State, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, throw the, Literally throw the records out, but the fact that they're both probably undefeated going into that makes it even better. And then Iowa going to Wisconsin. I mean, that's a game Iowa's going to be favored in and should win, but... Um, you know, that, that's still a rivalry game. That's still a tough place to play at, regardless of how well or how poor Wisconsin has been playing in a given year. So um, that's just – I can't remember a regular season day of Big Ten football um, that I've been more looking forward to with, with multiple games that are going to have long-term implications of both the, the conference and the playoff race. Oh, I agree. I mean, looking at it at the very beginning of the year, I'm like, well, how did they schedule this? Uh, because – you know, even because I didn't expect Michigan and Michigan State to be as good as what they were, I thought Penn State would rebound. I thought Wisconsin would be better, and I, but still, you know, you got to respect the Michigan Michigan State rivalry. And I thought, wow, this is a this is a heavy, heavy, heavy day, and I'm surprised that one of them didn't move. You know, they didn't say, well, let's let's look relook, let's change a few of these dates around and get this one at least one of those two or three games on at a different date. And, um, you know, I, I look at Penn State, and I mean, here, here's some things that kind of got missed when Clifford went out. Um, Iowa was losing at Maryland seven to three at the end of the first quarter, and 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 Tagaviola was was tremendous in the first quarter. He was eleven to fourteen. He had a hundred yards. He went right up down the field on Iowa, and that's the the thing with Iowa's defense is it because they don't blitz a lot because they they play a certain style if you go in with your script you can pretty much take advantage of them right away but once I kind of compare it to being a fastball hitter or something okay you got to catch up to that pitch but on about the you know your second at bat man that's the difference and I think that in some ways was the case because went back you know in Sean Clifford's last two full quarters against Iowa, he's thrown four interceptions through two in the first quarter there. He threw two against um, in the fourth quarter last year. And, and so uh, I would say when he was in there, it was clear that Penn state was the better team, but 
you know, you still got to play three more quarters and, and things can happen. And it was, it was a crazy rowdy environment. I didn't, I wouldn't think he would have melted down the way Robertson did. That was, that was something to see. I mean, eight false starts and just, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like that before, but, but, um, you know, I, I think that, that that's a, that's a matchup that if it happens again, um, there probably needs to be extra security at, at, in Indianapolis uh, for the teams, for the fans, for the coaches, <laughs> for the bars. <laughs> um, it's uh, after you know there were. I, I went through it. There were five different Penn State players who had sought medical attention on the field. Um, some of them were legitimately hurt. No question. A couple of them, you know, and it's a fine line um, when you know. Sometimes it's like just get off the field, you know, and then other times it's like, hey. If you're not feeling it, fall. You know, let them come out and get to you. Don't try to rush off the field if you're not feeling well and we're trying to scramble. So there's kind of this yin and yang. And, and Iowa fans kind of got burned in 2011 uh, against Michigan State. Jarrell Worthy admitting that that's, that was the thing. And and Kirk had talked about that some programs have uh, dive words, you know, like scuba <laughs> and turtle. So it's like, oh, if you, if you think, you know, and, and it seemed like it coincided. It could have been coincidental. It could be intentional. But it coincided with some of Iowa's rare big runs. And, uh, but anyway, <laughs> the rhetoric out of both sides of the camp is is flaming right now. And probably something I didn't quite expect. No, absolutely not. And look, I, I think there are a couple different layers to this conversation. One is like fans booing. Like, you know what, like, I'm not going to lecture fans on what they, they can or can't do or, or should or shouldn't say. It's called a home field advantage for a reason. Kinnick's one of the toughest places in the country to play, regardless of how good or bad Iowa is in a given season, because of their fans, because of that stadium. I, I'm not going to, like, sit here and say it's a great thing. You're, like, talking about players, mothers, or whatever you're saying when you're sitting behind the bench. But, like, that's college football. Like, that's, that's an environment. If you want to boo the other team for whatever reason and cheer your team for whatever reason – Go for it. Like, I, that's that's college football. That's why they call it home field advantage. I'm also not in the business of saying whether players faked injuries or not. I've never been comfortable going there. Um, again, I'm fine with fans doing it on Twitter or in the, in the crowd. I, I don't know why, after a victory, Kirk Ferentz had to bring that up. Like, I, I don't know what, like, the, the calculation is there. Like, what good comes out of it after a win? Um, so there's not, like... It's like we lost and we're bitter because maybe if this didn't happen or this that didn't happen, we would have won. I, 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 I mean, look, from our standpoint, the media, absolutely, it spices this thing up and hopefully we get a rematch because it's going to be really, really heated and really, really fun. Um, I don't know why. I just don't see the, the logic behind Iowa staff taking that approach publicly. Like, I, I don't know what good that does for anyone, especially after a win. And, you know, not to put you know too fine a point on it, but this isn't our Bryles' Baylor team we're talking about where you can't even substitute because they're going so fast. Like th- this isn't Gus Malzahn's Auburn team where, that Brett Bielma wanted basically banned from football. Like this is as rugged and as slow and as physical as it gets, and I mean that in a good way. But that's just not the type of offense that is conducive to a really good defense, mind you having to tap out because, you know, they're going too fast and they're exhausted. So that, that, that's my medium to spicy take on the whole uh, whole situation. Yeah. 
no, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, then I have to be kind of careful here on this, but I, I would say there's a couple things. Um, you know, one, I'm not comfortable with it either. I really wish that it wouldn't happen. I don't like that. And particularly early in the game, um, you know, I'm like, come on, are they really trying to do that against this? I, I, the tempo thing, I think that's probably what supercharged Iowa because, uh, you know, when he said that, well, they don't even go up tempo. Well, Iowa was, they don't, they were breaking off a few runs and all of a sudden it was like the physical toll was taking effect in, you know, okay. And then you, if you're Penn State, say, okay, yeah, the physical toll is taking the game. That's why the archives were getting dinged. And so, um, Okay, you know, so tempo does matter in that regard, but it also sometimes it's, hey, we're we're starting to feel that they're breaking off some runs here. We need to, to slow that a little bit. But uh, you know, Kirk's response was was to a question late in his press conference on Tuesday, as opposed to directly after the game, where um, you know Franklin was asked about Iowa fans booing, and he said, of course, he didn't like it, and he thought that they were, um, you know, hey, but they're not even an up tempo team. And, and so I think if you're Iowa, you kind of take that almost as a slight and, and say, well, you know, the fans are, uh, they smelled a rat, you know, so, which was, uh, you know, and, uh, people don't know that Salty Kirk's out there. I, I was going to say, like, I do love, like, again, purely entertainment purposes. I love this Salty Kirk between PJ Fleck last year and James Franklin this year, which will probably get him a bouquet of flowers from his colleagues throughout the big time, but go on. <laughs> Yes, and he, I'm sure, and he has him in his office. Uh, but uh, no, he's, um, you know, and, and I think at this point in his career, he's uh, out of blanks to give. Um, you know, he just doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, there's no love lost with him and Fleck. There's no love lost with him and Franklin. And and so, voila, here you go. Um, so, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I don't like it as a policy. I, I don't, I wish Iowa fans would not do that because, it's disrespectful to the fans who are hurt or to the players who are hurt. That's really true. But, you know, if, if you do, th the, the last one was the one where I, and that's where LeVar Woods was on video and shown, you know, fallen because it just looked so unusual. But, uh, you know, coming kind of back to the Hawkeyes, one, one interesting fact here is they've won 12 games in a row. They've beaten six ranked opponents in a row. And, you know, we can, Certainly the offense is, uh, it's offensively challenged, but they do, they have outscored their opponents over that 12 game win streak, 403 to 161. So it's not like, and they're averaging even this year, 31 and a half points a game. So they are scoring points. They're, of course, their special teams and their defense is really pivotal in that. But, um, I've seen, I've seen some good Iowa teams and I think this one's right there and this one, I think they have a shot against most teams because of the way they play and they don't turn the ball over. And that's the smart thing. They don't, they're risk averse, but it's in a good way. And so that's why I kind of anticipate them. Uh, you know, they're going to be there in the end. I mean, even if they get tripped up at Wisconsin or Nebraska, I mean, they're going to be an Indian. And then against whoever from the East, I think they can, they, they'll throw down whether they win or not. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I agree. They're, um, their style isn't for everybody, but it works. It's effective. And like every game, big or small, they come to play. Um, you can point to the Maryland game and say, hey, 
seven forced turnovers, of course they're going to win. Well, the offense scored on nine straight possessions. I don't care if you're playing Pee Wee. Like, that, that's that's not easy to do. Like, you have to be efficient. You have to be effective. That was against a Maryland team that a lot of people were very high on coming into that game. You know, Spencer Petras, I remember after the game, said something effective. Like, it was like, score, sideline. Oh, wait, I got to go back out there. We just got the ball back. All right, offense. Like, what are we doing? We got, we got to get ready. Like, um, they play complementary football as well as I've seen a good team play it in some time. I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, you know, even Alabama last year had Alabama and LSU the last two years, the national title winning years for both teams had two of the three worst defenses statistically um, to ever win national titles. And that's because it didn't matter because those offenses were so good and they, they just didn't really need to protect their defense. Um, Iowa, I think is um, played as sound and as well independent of opponent um, over the last year and a half as anyone in the country. And there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for winning the games you should win and leaving no doubt in a lot of those games as well. I mean, you know, we can, I'm sure Hawkeye fans have, like dissected last year's Northwestern game a million different ways, wondering how the hell did we lose that one. But you know what? They haven't lost one since. And again, there's something to be said for that. They're a really good program that's in a really good place right now. Um, that, you know, I, at this point I would be surprised. Well, they're, they're going to go to Indy. I, I mean, they're probably – I haven't done the math. They're probably only a couple weeks from actually clinching their spot in Indy. But, I mean, I, I'd be surprised at this point if they lose a game between now and then. And, you know, whoever they play then in a fast track in the Dome, we'll see. I'm looking forward to it because it's going to be – short of maybe Michigan, it's going to be a clash of, you know, contrasting styles, uh, whichever way. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I was to rank the possible matchups, I, I think it's probably going to be Ohio State, but I would say Penn State's got a really close shot. And the other two, I just need to see more. Because um, Michigan State's one, I mean, they shouldn't have beaten Nebraska. You know, Michigan was more of a toss-up, but Nebraska outplayed them, clearly, and they were able to, to pull out an overtime win at home. I, I guess uh, I'm not sure who's better out of the Michigan schools, but I do think that the the, the game on, on the 30th between Ohio State and Penn State will end up determining the East Division Championship. And uh, I would love to see Ohio State and Iowa simply because they've only played four times in 15 years. It's a crazy. I mean, they've only played twice since they went into divisional play. So, um, And they've had some really good, you know, the two games are, kind of iconic, especially the last one when Iowa won so decisively. So I don't know. what Do you have a handicap on this race, or are you kind of stepping back and waiting? Um, I know. I, I mean, you asked me to say who's going to be there. I think it'll be Ohio State and Iowa. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But there's still so much, at least on the you know, Ohio State's end, there's so many big games between now and then that um, who knows how it shakes out. I mean, in some ways, because these teams haven't played each other yet, like, and, and you know, you're more of a, a schedule nerd than I am in this department, but, like, you know, is there a scenario where they all just beat each other up and due to whatever tiebreaker, like, Michigan State gets it or something? Like the way Penn State got it in 2016 uh, because they had the head-to-head matchup went over Ohio State, and Ohio State ended up going to the playoff anyway. Um, that's what will make this absolutely fascinating, uh, especially against the backdrop of – 
undefeated Cincinnati, maybe an SEC title game that's going to be a playing game uh, for for um, a playoff spot and, and maybe for two playoff spots. Maybe the Big Ten will be that way um, if I was in there undefeated. Uh, maybe or I mean, if Oregon wins out, they're going to get in at twelve and one with a win over Ohio, oh, win over Ohio State and a Pac twelve title. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I don't. I haven't heard any talk playoff talk about Oklahoma after last week, despite the fact that hey. They're still undefeated. Their toughest games are behind them, and they may have been playing the wrong quarterback the whole time. Like that team's got it, got it really good right now, and I'd be shocked if they're not in it. So there's so many different scenarios, and we got to include the ACC in here. Wake Forest is undefeated. I will acknowledge that. If they're undefeated after Charlotte in December, and they're in the they'll be in the playoff. I don't think that's going to happen, but I will at least acknowledge the ACC here. To my point of. All five power conferences and beyond still have so much, so many different potential playoff scenarios that it's just, I, I can't remember a season like this. The Pac-12 is usually out like that. Um, the ACC outside of Clemson is usually out like that. Uh, the Big Ten outside of Ohio State, frankly, is usually out, you know, pretty pretty easily. So um, there's still so much to happen, so much has already happened. And when you throw in a, a name brand group of five opponent like Cincinnati that has two double-digit road power five wins, you know, buckle up. This is going to be really, really exciting. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, great breakdown, Matt. And uh, I, th- I appreciate your time. I know you've got a, a busy week. Uh, we, we all do. But this time of year is you're juggling a lot of balls in the air. So um, <laughs> thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you again. And who knows, after uh, Halloween weekend, we might have a better idea of what's going to happen. Maybe after this weekend, if Will Levis, the, the, who should have been the Penn State backup quarterback, goes into Athens, uh, we're having this conversation all over again about backup quarterbacks in the Big Ten and another playoff com- playoff contender in the SEC. I don't think that's going to happen. But, hey, hey, Kentucky's undefeated, too. i got to get them in there while I'm talking about undefeated teams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Mark Stoops, uh, everybody's next coach. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Scott. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, now we've got uh, two of my esteemed colleagues here, uh, Mitch Sherman, who covers Nebraska for us, and Max Olson, who covers uh, the national scope. And both of them live in uh, Big 12 slash Big 10 country. Uh, and this story that they wrote today, which is fantastic, I, I recommend it to everybody, uh, kind of straddles that line. Uh, when Nebraska in 2003 uh, was looking for a replacement for Frank Solich and all of the crazy twists and turns of a 41-day search that went on there. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the, to the Big Football Show. I'm thrilled to have you on again. Scott, would you like to cover a 41-day coaching search? No. I've covered two basketball ones. You can look at that as a good thing or a bad thing, I suppose. There's a lot of engagement with that. But at the same time, oh, holy moly. Like today with Twitter and everything, can you imagine? About two weeks is about as long. Two weeks after the season is about as long as you can want to go. Yeah. During the season, What's, like USC situation, you're kind of like, okay, well, this this happens. But, but now, I mean, can you imagine like 
after Black Friday, if it happens again and it takes two weeks that you don't know who the guy is. Oh, my God. What's interesting is all of the searches that have followed at Nebraska have been considerably shorter. I mean, we're talking days is is all that they have lasted. So uh, I think there were some lessons learned by the Nebraska administration. It had been 40 years for Nebraska since it had had a coaching search before this epic in 2003. (laughs) because <laughs> it was just a pretty much a handoff wasn't it from Devaney to Osborne and that's what the Solich it. yeah and yeah that's right yeah, there, there was no search for Osborne or for Solich it was it was one is stepping down and the other is stepping in so 1962 was the last time Nebraska had a coaching search before uh, Steve Peterson fired Frank Solich in November of 03 and then that one went 40 plus days and, and everything since you've had three coaching searches since then. And they've all been in the very short, short variety. Well, let's set the scene. Cause this was such a wild era. I remember it vividly. I was living in St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, sports editor of the St. Joseph news press at the time. And so I remember putting these stories in the paper every day. Um, and Oh, that's great. <laughs> for six weeks. Um, and, for those people who don't quite remember and, and some do and some don't, but I mean, Nebraska was the powerhouse the epitome of college football forever um, because it was so consistent and, and great. And then in the nineties, of course, we all know three national championships, but uh, then in 2001, my recollection was they were very, very good beat Oklahoma in, in that game. And then, um, then what the Kansas City Star wrote for their main headline was creamed corn against Colorado. That's right. And uh, then got crushed by Miami, who had a superstar team there in the Rose Bowl. And then they went seven and seven. And it was kind of a seemed like a freak out for, for a lot of fans, which because they've never experienced anything like that. Then comes 2003. And, and Mitch, what was that season like? And did you know at the time that this was the path that was going to end up happening? It seemed likely as the season went along. Um, and I was covering the team that year for the Omaha world Herald. I was a young reporter and, and was one of three or four riders on the beat. And as that season went and, along, and I was, you, I was 13 years old. So I was, I was a younger, a much younger non-reporter at the time. Max was watching from afar. He had no idea what was going on, or maybe he wasn't watching from afar. <laughs> I was, I was watching. Yeah, I was watching. Were you, th- you were 13 years old. Yeah. Born in 90. Oh my God. Max is a kid. I'm He's sorry. I don't mean to side de- derail this whole thing. Go ahead, Mitch. Yeah. As the season went along, it was apparent that Steve Peterson was at least looking at, at doing something. There was a, a press conference midway through the season to unveil plans for the Osborne football complex, which eventually became the home for Bill Callahan's program in 2006 when it opened. And it was a $40 million undertaking, which is about one quarter of the price that Nebraska is currently spending on on its next version of that that complex, but a lot of money in in that period. And Frank Solich was not a part of, of that press conference to unveil the plans for the complex, which one of the assistants, Marvin Sanders, who coached the secondary in that 03 season. And we should mention that Frank made a bunch of coaching changes on his staff after the 02 season, after the, the seven and seven year. They they shed some of the older coaches who were leftovers from the Osborne era and moved into uh, 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 the next the next stage of coaches, the next variety of coaches, brought in Bo Pelini as the defensive coordinator. And he had a great defense that year, school record, 44 turnovers. 
with that group, but it was a Nebraska team that, again, wasn't winning the big games, lost to Texas. And then there was the Kansas State game on November 15th, which was really the, the, the turning point or the, the deciding day in that season for Steve Peterson, the athletic director, because it was a 38-9 to loss. It was Nebraska's worst defeat at home since 1958. And it was the day, as our reporting tells us, that Steve Peterson began to make that decision to move on from Frank Solich. Within a few days, he had confided in Mark Bame, who we interviewed for this piece, that Solich's final game would be on Black Friday at Colorado. And of course it ultimately was. And and that was a crazy week leading up to leading up to that, uh, that black Friday game. And it's worth pointing out Steve Peterson, the AD uh, who ends up being much maligned in all this was in his first year as the athletic director too. So you have sort of that classic tension that we see all the time in college football and college athletics, where I'm sure throughout 2003, Frank Solich is trying to figure out is this guy, for me, with me, or is he against me? And, um, you know, you so typical that you have the new AD who comes in, who wants to do something very splashy to make a name for themselves and, um, you know, sort of assert their, their new power over a place. And, uh, clearly, you know, even with a, with a nine and three season, um, Steve Peterson was, was concerned about the future and, and determined to, um, you know, leave his, leave his mark here. And so, you know, the staff was certainly right to be paranoid that this, this AD, uh, you know, was not on their side. And Steve was, we should mention was riding high at this point. He had spent six years at Pitt and he had hired Walt Harris as a successful football coach. He had hired Ben Howland as a successful basketball coach. He seemed to have the golden touch when it came to hiring coaches and Nebraska was his, his homeland. He was uh, a kid from North Platte, Nebraska, who worked for Tom Osborne as a in the recruiting office and rose to become recruiting coordinator, spent time as an administrator in football at Ohio State and Tennessee before he got that job as the, the top guy at Pitt. So when he came back to Nebraska to replace Bill Byrne in December of 02, Bill had had left after a long run to go to Texas A&M as the AD. Steve Peterson was the guy. He was more popular than Frank Solich. He was he was the the only choice, much like Scott Frost in 2017. Steve Peterson was was that when it came to an AD, extremely popular, and Harvey Perlman, the the hadn't made a mistake yet at that point. Right, yeah, right. He, Harvey Perlman, the chancellor who hired him and and who Max spoke with um, in a great a, a great revealing interview for this for this story that t- today, um, he, he was on board like everybody else. I ha- he had to hire Steve. Wow. And what's interesting, one of the kind of wow moments of many, I would say, through this whole thing was the the what the day of uh, Black Friday when uh, what was it, Peterson, that started getting in the face of John Mabry, who um, I wanted to at the time because he took two of my assistant sports editors from the (laughs) did he really express back was that? And the second one was uh, is Clark Grell, who is this? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, That's I hired him out of town. World. Yeah, he's a tremendous uh, designer. One of the probably the best I've ever been around. Yeah, Mitch, Mitch, tell that story of uh, you know the the confrontation. This one was left on the cutting room floor, and it's a great anecdote. So you almost had the date right on the on the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So this is November twenty second. The Lincoln Journal Star prepared was preparing to to publish a piece on Sunday November 23rd saying 
that Steve Peterson wanted to move on from Frank Solich. And he had decided that Frank Solich was going to coach his final game on the Nebraska sideline against Colorado on Black Friday. And this matched up entirely with the reporting that we uh, that we did in, in hearing from Mark Bame, who was Peterson's right-hand man, that that, that decision had been made. And the Lincoln Journal-Star um, was sourcing this with three sources. Um, they had this thing locked down. And Mabry, I think it was, think it was out of state boosters that they'd sourced it from. Yeah. Yeah. Mabry went to the Bob Devaney Sports Center on Saturday, November 22nd, as the Nebraska men's basketball team opened its season against Fairleigh Dickinson. And perhaps Steve should not have attended that game, but uh, he did, being the, the, the mindful AD that he was. And Mabry slides up next to him and says, Here's what we're preparing to report tomorrow in the newspaper. And Steve went ghost white, according to Mabry's explanation, and he wouldn't say no, that he wouldn't deny it. He, of course, wouldn't confirm it. And the, the words that, that he said to John Mabry stuck with him with Mabry for these 17 years. And he said, you can't do this. So he was very aware. Peterson he, was bu- was. he was busted. Yeah, he was very aware of what the next few days were going to be like before he could actually do the deed and get rid of Solich if this report on Sunday, November 23rd came out. And it did come out, and that week was terrible for Steve Peterson. It was awkward. It was uh, it was awkward for Frank Solich and all of his staff and all of his players. So credit to them that they went to Colorado. Steve nearly undermined the team on the way out to Colorado, and clearly, as people have told us, was rooting for Nebraska to lose that Black Friday game at Colorado. It did not lose. It won 31 to 22. And that made even more of a mess for Peterson, who fired Solich in a in a five-minute meeting the next day. And I think Max, why don't you tell us the story from Saturday night of what happened with Steve? Oh, yeah. There was there was just it, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, Scott, it's it's always fun to go through the old newspaper archives on these. So we went through all the journal star and world herald papers from from this 41 day period well really more than that and um <laughs> uh let me let me find this one hold on a sec yeah let me pull this up here so um cindy dalton the daughter of frank solich um you know the the night of the firing uh the, the journal star calls her to, to try and confirm the news that frank solich is out she confirms it she said peterson told dad that he really hadn't made up his mind until five minutes before dad walked through the door. Dad <laughs> said he couldn't believe that Peterson had the nerve to say that to his face. So busted again. Wow. <laughs> so we're off to a pretty, um, you know, we're off to a pretty shady start here, Scott. And, and also one thing we learned in the process of this is one of the great mysteries that, uh, you know, was, was kept under wraps for uh, so what, 17, 18 years, however long it's been. Um, and that is we've, we were able to confirm in our reporting that um, Steve Peterson did have a number one target that he you know pursued before firing Frank Solich. And that has remained a mystery forever. Yeah. Um, you know, Harvey Perlman, the chancellor on his way out in, in 2016, he gave an exit interview to the Omaha World Herald. He dropped a hint. He said the real, the, the real story of what happened in 2003 is that Steve Peterson had a plan A and that coach, um, you know, changed their mind, didn't come. Uh, they were very sure this coach was coming for some reason. And then C. Peterson had no plan B. And that's why the search took so long and, and went so disastrously. Well, he wouldn't say then who it was. I talked to Harvey Perlman and he, he as we were talking, uh, he 
giving me those that same spiel, give me the same hints. And he's like, oh, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was Mike Sherman, head coach of the Green Bay Packers. And does that make any sense to you, Scott, why the sitting head coach of the Green Bay Packers, uh, who'd been uh, to the playoffs the last two years, why, like, why, why leave for Nebraska at that moment in time? You know, Not at all. I was, I was covering the Chiefs at that time. Um, and so they were in the playoffs. So were the Chiefs. I, I remember watching right after Manning versus the the Chiefs when it was no a no punt game. No punt early, game. That's right. Early Sunday uh, football game. Right after that was fourth and twenty six with uh, the Eagles and Donovan McNabb and and uh, they were up fourteen to nothing and lost. But you know this was uh, people still liked Mike Sherman in Green Bay country and he wasn't on. The, they started poorly. They started six and six, but he wasn't yeah. on the hot seat. Right. Yeah. They, they had a. Uh, a history there and and he had Brett Favre still and they you know again went to the playoffs and that's not that's not a normal trajectory except for a coach who may be on his way out and that this Correct. was a parachute the only thing that makes a little bit of sense is that Sherman was feeling some kind of heat because of the way those first 10 games went and after the weekend when Nebraska lost to Kansas State and Steve started to think seriously about this move that he had to make Green Bay was 5 and 5 and then it won against San Francisco on November 23rd to go to six and five and then lost on Thanksgiving to the Detroit Lions. So it's sitting at six and six going. And you never December. want to lose to the Lions on Thanksgiving. That's just, yeah. you know, they were a five and 11 team like usual. They, they were not very good. Right. So I think there's some concern on the part of Sherman, at least enough concern to entertain a conversation. Now, Steve Peterson was naive in thinking that he had any shot at all if yeah. Mike Sherman was staying intact with the Packers to lure him away. He wasn't stealing away Mike Sherman. If Mike Sherman had gone in the tank with the Packers in December and they said enough is enough after one bad season, Sherman... He, he would have had to have been fired. He's not walking away from his job. He was oh, the no. head coach. He was the GM. He was the executive VP. He had personnel control. He was making... Oh... Double to triple what Nebraska was paying for its next head coach. He was in a good position, and I talked. I, I was able to talk to Mike Sherman, and his his interest was simply, you know, Nebraska is a great job. You know, it, it, certainly at the time too. Nebraska is a special place. You don't just say flat out no when Nebraska calls you. But he wasn't looking to leave, and he certainly wasn't looking to leave in the middle of an NFL season. Um, you can't you can't pull the Petrino. You know, you know, you, there's no coming back from that kind of thing. You know, so. Um, not that that had happened at the time, I don't think, but, um, <laughs> I, so, so it was, it was just, you know, it would, it would it have been a wow hire. Yeah. I mean, stealing the coach of the Packers would have been a wow hire, but it was just too ambitious. Um, no matter how much Sherman expressed interest or whatever, it was too ambitious and it got them off to a bad start. I think the, the bottom line in this is that Peterson, oversold it to his boss, to Harvey Perlman, and maybe on purpose because he just had that kind of arrogance about him. He felt very strongly about Nebraska's ability because it was Nebraska. It was the Nebraska in his mind that he grew up watching. That was the dominant program in college football, but Nebraska was not the dominant program in college football in 2003. And Peterson either failed to recognize that or refused to acknowledge it. So he sold this to Harvey Perlman. And, you know, one other factor, one minor factor that um, that came up in our reporting on this with Mike Sherman is that he had a relationship with Tim Cassidy, who was 
the associate AD for football at Texas A&M. Sherman had been at Texas A&M as an assistant coach under R.C. Slocum with Cassidy on that staff. And Cassidy had connections to Nebraska. He was from Omaha. Uh, He was a contemporary of Steve Peterson. And he was a sounding board for the Nebraska athletic director in this search. Ultimately, he pointed Nebraska in the direction or at least helped point Nebraska in the direction of Houston Nutt who was a candidate down the road in January, in December and January for a short period of time. But I think Cassidy played a role also in just allowing Mike Sherman to have some kind of a conversation with Nebraska, because there was a relationship between Cassidy and Peterson. If Cassidy wasn't involved, I don't know that Sherman would have ever even taken the phone call from Steve Peterson in November. And then this plan A thing maybe never gets off the ground. How is the search different at that point? Who knows? Maybe Steve has a more well-formulated plan A or a different plan A, a more well-formulated plan B, but his role in this Cassidy is an interesting one. Now, before, before we jump to Houston, Scott, what, what's your memory of covering Al Saunders? Yeah. And I wanted to get to him next and that yeah. tremendous guy. I, I thought he was really a, an engaging, wonderful man. Um, very energetic would after practice, he would go out and run miles, you know, whether it was up in training camp in Wisconsin or around the sounds college. like Tom Osborne. Yeah. Just, um, if that one would have worked out, um, which is really honestly of the two. And I know Mike Sherman a little bit, he would have been an outstanding coach because he knew how to press on offense. Unlike a lot of coordinators I've seen, because he could do it within the running game and still be able to execute the, uh, a, a, a upper level passing attack with, you know, he had great line, of course, and good running backs and outstanding tight end and, and a decent quarterback, but he would have been great at Nebraska. His personality would have fit. He would have, and reading, and, and I'd like for you guys to kind of go into that, the because I thought that was, that was really fascinating. And then Kevin Steele, if he would have came with him on the defensive side of things, I don't, I mean, I think life would have been a lot different in Nebraska over the last 15 to 20 years. Yeah, I, yeah, Max, you take that, yeah, you, you take this, but let me just reset quickly who Kevin Steele is. And he recruited Tommy Frazier. He was the the ace recruiter for Tom Osborne in the early 90s. He helped as much as anyone on that staff build that thing into a dynasty. And he was coming back with with Al Saunders. He said done deal. Player. Yeah, he thought it was a done deal. Um, you know, I agree with you, Scott. I first of all, I talked to Al Saunders for more than an hour. He's retired yeah. now. Absolutely lovely guy. Lovely conversation. Um, he said he'd never talked about this before. I don't know if anyone's really asked him about Not this really. before of, of um, how close he was taking Nebraska. And, you know, you make a good point. You think about where the future of the Big 12 ended up offensively. Mm-hmm. They may have been ahead of the game a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. with an Al Saunders offense. Um, I, I think that, you know, I... It's interesting when you're putting this together. I'm sure a lot of people don't know who Al Saunders is because he did not, you know, he had a brief stint as a head coach for the Chargers a long time ago. Right. Um, He did not become a head coach. He did not become the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, which he was promised. Um, He did not become a head coach after that. And so I can understand if some people sort of look back and say, well, who is that? Why would that have been a big hire? Honestly, in, in all the people we talked to, and I think Mitch would agree. Al Saunders would have been the best fit of all the people they talked to for this job. And there's a ton of reasons for that. Um, he's a successful OC of the chiefs. They were 13 and three that year. Like you said, 
um, with with a hell of an offense. He'd been part of the Rams staff with Greatest Show on Turf. He'd been part of Eric Coriel. Um, he told me he really believed he could recruit the best quarterbacks and receivers in the country to come play at Nebraska and play in his system. And I think that would have helped him, you know, pull off this very difficult transition away from the Solich style of football and the Osborne style, obviously. Um, he, he understood Nebraska. I think he understood a, Nebraska. Yeah. His, his daughter had just finished playing soccer for the Huskers. Um, they would drive to Lincoln on Fridays to watch her games um, from Kansas city. He'd been in the Midwest for the last 15 years at the, at the time Nebraska calls him. Um, he had a ton of respect for the university. He was, he said he was good friends with Frank Solich and he, and he told me that he thought, you know, coming up in the profession, he thought that, that Bob uh, Devaney and, and, you know, Tom Osborne were gods. I mean, he, he really revered them. So how could you drop a more perfect guy? He didn't go to Nebraska, but like, how could you drop a more perfect guy to kind of uh, slip into this situation? And, and, you know, when I talked to Kevin Steele, um, he really believed that, um, you know, Al Saunders could have been maybe the most natural progression from Osborne to Solich to the next coach in terms of not like they knew this program wasn't broken. They weren't going to go in there and burn everything down. And the thing that is so uh, we can get into why he's not the coach in Nebraska, but the thing that, that Kevin Steele told me that really stuck with me, he said, um, he's one of the most brilliant coaches I've ever been around. And Kevin Steele has been all over college football over the years here. He said he's one of the most brilliant coaches I've ever been around. Um, very, very high IQ, very high football IQ on a whole nother level. When I tell you brilliant, that's not just a loose statement thrown out there. I've been around some smart people before and some smart football coaches. Coach Osborne is on another level in terms of that kind of IQ football and otherwise so is Al Saunders. So, I mean, like what, what better sort of like uh, recommendation can, can you get than that, that maybe this guy, you know, not the sexiest hire, maybe in the eyes of Husker fans then or today, but maybe this guy could have been the perfect fit for it. I think he his was connection yeah, Steele was, and Saunders was, it was Tennessee, right? That's where, uh, yeah, he, yeah they'd been together. together. He, and he's very well connected guy who was going to bring a, a, a heck of a staff together. That was going to be some, you know, really strong recruiters and stuff. And I, you know, Scott, like you said, you, you knew him well, like I, there's no guarantees in this stuff. And, and certainly whoever succeeded Solich is, was walking into a little bit of a treacherous situation, but I don't know. I've been talking to him. I, I, I was pretty bought in. This could have worked. I agree. I think it would have, um, you know, and I do remember when he didn't get the job, I, I was still, uh, that was my last year covering it before I moved to Iowa. And uh, part of that was that they, under the Vermeil era, they had this offensive identity, which was awesome, which was totally on Al Saunders. He knew how to press the buttons that made it work. But a lot of times it wasn't in complimentary football with the defense. The defense wasn't very good. And Carl Peterson, the, the, the King Carl, as he was called sometimes, the GM president, really was uncomfortable with the way the style of football was going because, you know, they had Marty Schottenheimer all those years. And, yeah. and Al was his offensive coordinator too. Um, but he had him all those years and he was just, he wanted more of a defensive image. And that's why he kind of went with her, who he knew from his Philadelphia era, you know, days. And it was really unfortunate because I liked, like I said, I liked Al. There was one time, I'm going way back, but pick it up. By the way, I looked this up. Was it was Greg Robinson the DC in 03? I think it was. Yeah, there was a there was a difference in the coordinators. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but I'm your story on. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I I've got the story from when he got fired. But uh, <laughs> you know when I uh, 
I remember walking into the, the facility and I was with my daughter who was just born at the time and picking up credentials and I ran into Al and, you know, he, he wouldn't even talk to me. He was on his hands and knees, you know, kind of poking at my daughter and everything. Oh, you know, she's so cute and everything. And, and he, he had the, the aura and he, you could just tell by when you talk to him, he's so positive on the field. He, he'd go to the wide receivers a lot of times and, you know, great route. That's a great job. He was never really like Gunther Cunningham on the other side. Every other word started with the letter F. He was not mm-hmm. like that. So he would have been a perfect fit. And so what ended up happening? Why didn't he take the job? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those stories that I'm sure happens a lot and, and maybe you don't hear it from some of these guys until they end up retiring and it's at the end of their career and stuff. But um, you know, look, it, it's as, as much as these jobs come with big pay and, and um, you know, big platform and all that stuff, it can be hard to say yes to them sometimes. And in the case of Al Saunders, he was very gung ho about doing this. He he'd had a great meeting with Steve Peterson. They'd set up a meeting. All right, you're going to fly out to Lincoln on Friday, bring your agent. You know, we're going to meet the chancellor and they all assumed, all right, you know, we'll get the deal done there. And he, he's making calls. He's putting his staff together. He's, you know, he tells his daughter, he says, don't breathe the word of this to anybody, but he tells his daughter and she tells her roommate, Hey, yeah, we're coming, we're coming to town on Friday to meet the chancellor. Um, but on Wednesday, you know, to, because he's a, as a respectful guy and, and didn't want to be shady about any of this stuff. He uh, went to meet with um, Carl Peterson and, and Dick Vermeil and, you know, at the time he had Nebraska, you know, pretty much ready to hire him. Um, and he also had the Raiders calling to say, Hey, come interview for, for our head head job. Cause they had just fired somebody at the time. And, um, <laughs> you know, be? I think who could that be? And, uh, and what he was told was, you know, Dick Vermeil hadn't publicly made his decision yet on his future. His contract was expiring. Do you remember Scott? And he, he told them in that room, okay, I'm going to stay two more years and I'm going to retire. I'm going to step down. And it was intimated to Al Saunders that in two years, if, you know, if you stay here and continue to be the OC, um, you, you will succeed uh, Dick Vermeil in two years. And so then he walks out of that meeting going, Oh, what do I, what do I do now? And um, you're sort of literally just that, do I want to be the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers? Do I want to be the head coach of the Kansas city chiefs? This guy had, had been at the college level, but had put in so many years at the NFL level. And, and for many of these guys, whether it's him or, um, you know, Mike Zimmer or, or Mike Sherman, the, the, a lot of these guys have put in so many years that they want to be an NFL head coach. They see that as just a superior job bottom line and who could blame them. So he went very back and forth with it and he felt horrible about the timing because the chiefs, like you mentioned, um, were, were getting ready. They didn't, I don't know if they knew they were playing the cold staff, but they were getting ready for the playoffs. 13 three. They had Super Bowl aspirations. I thought they had a damn good team. And so he knew, if I'm taking this job, I'm going to be making all these late night phone calls for, to recruits and I'm going to be lining up a staff and I'm going to be distracted. And I, what if I'm the reason this team loses? And so he, um, you know, he, he got cold feet. He did. He, he said, um, you know, the best, the best move for him and his family was to stay in Kansas city and, and succeed Dick for meal. Um, and they called, you know, called, called the, the Steve Peterson the next day and, and bowed out, which I'm sure was a shock to them. Uh, Cause I'm sure they thought that was going to be, you know, that was going to be the move. And, you know, the sad thing is that like, as you mentioned, Scott, two years later, he gets passed over for Herm Edwards uh, because Carl Peterson says, well, I always wanted to hire Herm Edwards and he became available. So what can you do about it? You know, like that's, 
yeah, D- Dick said that, but Dick's gone. This is what I want to do. So um, it's, it is sad. And he said that, you know, certainly if he knew that he couldn't become the head coach of the chiefs uh, down the road, and if he, if he knew everything he knew now, then he would have taken the Nebraska job. Wow. It's amazing how sometimes things work out that way. And this one really didn't work out for anybody, um, you know, in this regard, because he somewhere along the line, he should have been in a head coach again. He didn't have a great experience in San Diego because it was right at the end of the Coriel era. He kind of got, he's kind of involved in him getting fired and then Fouts was gone and they just kind of fumbled for a while. And, uh, but another NFL coach now current one came into, came into play. Uh, what, what happened there on a snowy night on a private jet? Yeah. So we're talking about Mike Zimmer, who was the defensive coordinator of the Dallas Cowboys worked for Bill Parcells and, this is after Saunders had turned it down and, and we're actually now moving ahead to after the time that Houston Nutt had turned down the, the, the job. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and that's okay. We can go back quickly to Houston Nutt, but let's talk about Mike Zimmer. And he came in and the search in this week after the BCS championship game, which was on September, uh, January 4th, um, it turned to Lincoln. Uh, the, the the front changed. This was no longer Steve Peterson flying around and wooing candidates. It was, we're going to be more transparent. Um, and they had a press conference to announce that in a bizarre Saturday uh, situation after the, the nut fiasco uh, from the day before on, on January 2nd. Um, so uh, Zimmer flies in on a, uh, on a weeknight. It's uh, it's snowy. It's late. The lights are on at Memorial Stadium. They take him on a on a tour to see the the building. He's impressed by it. He goes to the embassy suites where the media is camped out. This is turning into a circus yeah. in, in Lincoln, very much. There are there are riders tailing cars from the airport. There are riders on the street outside of Steve Peterson's home where he was handling the interviews. Um, you know, as much it, it's. It was as crazy as you could possibly imagine without social media being involved. And if this was the era of social media, it would I, I don't it would have been untenable for for Steve Peterson and, and the Nebraska administration to manage this thing. And it was almost uh, in spite of the the absence of social media. So Zimmer stayed one night. He interviewed the next day, flew home, talked about it with his wife, and like Al Saunders, uh, took his name. Bill Parcells wasn't going to let him leave. Yeah, they they were they were also in good shape over there. They had the number one defense, and you know they took care of him and got him to stay. Again, though, it's a guy that doesn't get a head coaching job for another decade um, yeah. after applying for a bunch of them at the NFL level. It's hard, it's very hard to get those jobs. So you can see why it's uh, you know you can see why it's tempting to at least take an interview uh, with a place like Nebraska and try and improve your position a little bit. And Mark Bame said he loved him, uh, said he wished that, that Zimmer would have taken the job. He, he drove him around Lincoln and they looked at real estate. So there was at least some interest. Uh, maybe he's just covering his, uh, covering his bases, but um, there was some interest uh, from Zimmer. But once he got back to Dallas, it seemed like it was. Uh, he, it was he didn't bad. play him as bad as Houston Nutt. And that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a feather in his cap, I suppose, in all of this. Yeah, let's get to uh, Mr. Nutt here. And, uh, uh, you know, funny side story for that was my final year in college. In 1997, so Max, you would have been what seven years old. Oh boy, uh, oh which boy. makes me really cringe. I, I'm right there with you, Scott. <laughs> I covered a uh, a game uh, when I was at Western Illinois. It was a playoff game at Murray State, Kentucky, and the coach was Houston Nutt, and it rained the entire time. It sucked, but he was a uh, you know kind of flamboyant at the time, and uh, and I'm like, okay, and he had such an odd name anyway, or memorable name that I thought. 
Okay. And uh, voila, he ends up in Arkansas. And uh, then he becomes the central figure that everybody knows from this soul search. I mean, people didn't know about Al Saunders. People didn't know about Mike Sherman until they read your story today. Mike Zimmer was under the radar, but Houston Nutt wasn't. So what, what happened here? Boy, Houston Nutt. You know, I think one of the more we put this high up in the story because it is one of the more memorable fiascos in all of this for uh, Nebraska is, uh, you know, once Al Saunders said no, Steve Peterson had had a plan. And that plan was, uh, you know, being the savvy uh, uh, new AD that he was, he said, I'm going to get a coaching hire done. and I'm going to announce it uh, during the weekend of the BCS title game uh, between LSU and Oklahoma. You know, why, why not upstage Oklahoma a little bit within your conference? And so he thought that they, we're going to announce our big hire and sort of steal some headlines at that time when, you know, certainly everybody's, you know, all, all, all the media's, uh, you know, buzzing about college football. So he had that plan. Well, when Al Saunders calls him on a Thursday morning and says, never mind, I'm not coming to Lincoln, it was, it was time to go figure out the next hire as soon as possible. So he gets on a plane to Fayetteville and, uh, you know, goes to, goes to meet with Houston Nutt and pitch him on uh, coming to Nebraska. Houston uh, remembered that uh, he brought a laptop to the uh, uh, meeting and showed him all of these uh, sort of designs of what their new football building and indoor and all that stuff are going to look like, which Houston Nutt thought was very high tech and impressive. And, uh, you know, he, but he really wanted, he was being very pushy. He was, he was really trying to rush through the hire um, because he needed to get this done. And, you know, the longer this goes on, as we saw with Nebraska, the worse it gets for you. So, uh, that night, uh, and don't totally know why, maybe just to crank up more pressure and make it all more entertaining. But that Thursday night, um, Frank Broyles tells the local paper, I'm 90% sure that he's leaving for the Nebraska job. <laughs> and the Arkansas AD. The Arkansas AD, Frank Broyles. Yeah, and the legendary coach oh, before that. Yeah. And so it's looking good for Nebraska. The next day, uh, you know, Peterson goes back, thir- back, goes back home Thursday. Um, the next day, uh, Arkansas makes its push to try and keep um, Houston nut. And uh, that leads to just this very wild tug of war throughout the day uh, between Nebraska and Arkansas for a coach that Nebraska fans were just like, what? Like Houston nut. Like there, no one was like, Oh, we absolutely have to hire Houston nut. If this is our chance to, I think a lot of people were like, what, where, where is this coming from? What's the connection here? Why, why are we going after this guy? And, uh, Mitch, you should tell the story of, of Mark Bame's plan uh, for when he got to Lincoln. But the, the, the infamous part of this is they, N- Nebraska sent a plane to the NWA airport. And uh, they, the, the idea was that Houston was going to get on that plane and fly to Lincoln. And they claim just interview with Perlman. But certainly, I think if you get on that plane, you know how this works in this business, Scott. If you leave Fayetteville and get on that plane, you shouldn't come back. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will tell the story about Friday, January 2nd. But first, I want to tell one quick story about Thursday, January 1st, New Year's night. So Steve Peterson goes to Fayetteville to, uh, to, to wow Houston Nut, as Max described. And since we've been talking about the newspaper business during this podcast, I, as I said, was working at the Omaha World Herald. And our bosses had this ridiculous policy that if you were a reporter, you had to help out the desk folks and spend a holiday working the desk as if we didn't already work all the other holidays like Thanksgiving and Labor Day, whatever it might be during the football season. So on New Year's night, 
I was at the office in downtown Omaha when we got word that Steve Peterson's plane coming back from Fayetteville was diverting to York, Nebraska. And if you've driven across I-80 on the way to Colorado, you've been through York with the big balloon water tower, uh, 60, 70 miles to the west of Lincoln. So I drove out to York and I met his plane and there was no one else at the airport. And Steve and I had a quick encounter in the parking lot that night as he got into his SUV about Houston nut. And of course he said nothing, but we had a visual on the AD coming back. So that was nice. All right. Next day, Friday, January 2nd, there's the crazy scene going on in Houston nuts living room with the board of directors at Arkansas, trying to keep him with his agent, Jimmy Sexton on the phone, telling him, go, go, go. You're going to get $2 million. I can, I can make, I can get it to two and a half million dollars. This is a huge payday for Jimmy Sexton, the famous agent who represents Nick Saban and, and, and others at this point. You had Frank Broyles telling him to make a decision. And you had Steve Peterson and Mark Bame back in Lincoln, chewing their fingernails off, waiting for this thing to happen. They were concerned if Nutt did get on the plane that Friday that was sitting in Arkansas and come back to Lincoln, that it would be a disaster when he landed because everyone would be out at the airport to see this guy. Here comes Nebraska's next coach, and it's Houston Nutt. So, and ho- I mean, so hopefully we- they're all cheering him, but who knows? Yeah, right? that wouldn't I mean, have been it's... the case. And so they, they couldn't put him <laughs> at a hotel. Is it going to Auburn? But yeah, I got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't put him at a hotel. They couldn't put him at the embassy suites downtown next to the stadium where Mike Zimmer stayed and where Bill Callahan eventually stayed for two nights with his wife, Valerie, when he took the job. So Mark Bame made up a room at his guest at his house, the guest house. Actually, Janelle Bame, his wife, made up the room. Mark said, we're, we're going to have a coach here coming in for the night on Friday. So go ahead and make up the room. Well, Houston Nutt called on that Friday, January 2nd, and said he wasn't coming. So when Mark Bame got home to see his wife at the end of the night, she said, well, where's our guest? And Mark had to say, he's not coming. So that's the story of Houston Nutt not coming to Nebraska. And then it went to Mike Zimmer, and eventually it went to Bill Kelly. Houston, you know, he's just, he told me repeatedly, and it was great catching up with him. He's with, you know, CBS Sports now. Um you know, he said, he said I, just, I couldn't get on that plane. I couldn't get on that plane. And he said that spring, <laughs> he went around to the Razorback clubs and they, they just ate that up. That just him sort of giving the whole speech about how he couldn't get on that plane to Nebraska because Arkansas is, you know, the best job in the world and all that stuff. And, um, you know, but he's the, you know, it's, it's, and had he been more, you know, he hadn't had a 10 win season yet at Arkansas. So it wasn't like a no brainer hire on Nebraska side, but, you know, Scott, one thing that's complicated about this business is, you know, you, you when you've been in place five, six, seven years, um, he thought he wondered if the fans were already getting sick of him, you know, and it's like, have you done all you can do here? Is this is this time to the time to make a move? You don't get many of those chances in, in this business where uh, somebody wants you. So how does the Houston nut era go at Nebraska, Mitch? Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I really Not well, don't know. I, I don't think it would have gone well. <laughs> I really don't. I It would have been kind of like the Dana Altman era. At Arkansas, if you remember that, the Creighton basketball coach who, yes. who uh, accepted the Arkansas job for one day. Hey. I think it would have gone better than that for Houston Nutt, but uh, but not much. I was uh, I was actually in Atlanta when he 
got that job because Iowa was looking for a replacement for Steve Alford. So mm-hmm. I spent four days at the final four, just going from hotel to hotel, trying to find the right, <laughs> trying to find the next coach. And uh, that was, uh, and, and so I'm going to airports, I'm going everywhere in, in the city of Atlanta. And then finally they break it an hour before the national championship game that Todd Licklider is going to Iowa. So that's kind of the Mike Riley of Iowa basketball. Yes, for sure. So after what now, five plus weeks uh, after the Zimmer situation, uh, there's – Now they've been turned down four times, if we're keeping track here. Yeah. At at least officially turned down four times. Desperation's got to be gripping him, and and fans are crawling all over themselves, wondering what's going on. And then you get – Bill Callahan available from the Oakland Raiders. What happened there? Yeah, well, I can say that I talked to Adam True, uh, a former Nebraska offensive lineman who played in the 90s and was on the Raiders, along with a couple of other Huskers in that era, uh, John Perella and Eric Johnson. But True in particular, he made a phone call back to Doak Ostergaard, who was the trainer at Nebraska under Osborne and, and through the Solich era. And Mark Bame told me that uh, Doak came to him and said, hey, I got a recommendation from somebody that I trust that Bill Callahan would be a good hire. So I reached out to Adam True, and he did not want to take credit for sending Bill Callahan to Nebraska. Had great things to say about Bill Callahan, but um, he doesn't necessarily know that he was the one um, who made that happen. He did talk to Doak Ostergaard. They did talk about Bill Callahan. It was one factor, perhaps, in getting Nebraska excited um, about this guy, but certainly not the only thing. So, you know, Scott, some people were a little wary about that. Well, don't say that I recommended Bill Callahan for the job. You know, I mean, nobody really totally wants credit for that. It's kind of it's like- only a partial recommendation from Adam True, who did not make it in this story, but we're gonna we're gonna uh, put him in this podcast. So, um, that's where it started in some way, shape, or form, and it was just a whirlwind romance. He came in. Uh, spent two nights with his wife in Lincoln. They dined with Harvey Perlman and his wife in the wine cellar of the Lincoln Country Club down the road from from Steve Peterson's home uh, so no one would see them. Um, Bill actually did did say hello to the media a few times as he came in and out of the hotel lobby at the Embassy Suites. And then on Friday, January 9th, the week after the the plane sat on the the runway in, in Fayetteville, Bill Callahan was introduced as the coach on the 42nd day of this search. And here we he are 27 and 22 when he was fired along with Steve Peterson in 2007. He, he didn't have the best personality when he was with the Raiders. I can, I can acknowledge that from covering a few games there between the Raiders and the chiefs. And uh, he didn't get along with his players at all uh, in Oakland. I don't know why they would have thought this was going to work. Um, with Bill Callahan. He's an outstanding offensive line coach, as good as that is. But as far as leading people, and as we know, there is such a difference between a college head coach and an NFL head coach. NFL head coach, you don't really have to care about go out and glad handing and stuff. You're just there for the players and in a media on an occasional basis. But but with coaches, you got to sell the program. You got to smack backs, remember names, kiss babies. You know, oh yeah, I remember you. You know, all that. Maybe I'm just thinking of Hayden Fry too much, but you know. Yeah, Max, I know you brought up the point of of Callahan and the similarities to Mike Sherman. Yeah, so. I mean, does that? 
this is what I found sort of, uh, I think when kind of connecting all the dots here, Scott, I'm, I'm curious if, if this makes sense to you too. If your ideal hire is Mike Sherman, do you think the reason they ended up with Bill Callahan is they just said, well, this is close enough. That's what it's gotta be. That's, I mean, when you're in your fifth choice and it's like, Hey, I was trying to get an NFL coach to install an NFL system. And it's a similar enough guy, but he was available because he'd been fired. And, you know, and he has a Super Bowl appearance on his resume. Now, did he do that with John Gruden's team? You could make that argument. Did he lose to John Gruden in that game? Obviously. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, a, it was a very odd tenure and certainly odd how it started with, with your head coach being traded. Um, but you, I think that there is a level of, I mean, we've established the level of desperation here and, and there was a clear, you know, sense of urgency that this thing was, this thing was in uh, just getting worse by the day, the longer they didn't have a coach. And I think that's certainly not exclusive to the Nebraska search of 2003. This is how searches go sometimes, especially if you, it doesn't go the way you thought it would at the start. Sometimes you just have to hire the, whoever you think the best person is when it's time to make a hire. And in this case, you know, how long did Nebraska know Bill Callahan? What do you think, Mitch? I mean, a couple days, a week max, not even a week. Like they vetted him. They talked to people, you know, you do that kind of stuff. You do, you do this stuff so you can say you did it. Right. But how much did Bill Callahan really understand Nebraska? I think he and his agent admit not very much and, and vice versa. How much did Nebraska and, uh, you know, understand Bill Callahan and everything that he was and wasn't. And, and also sort of, you know, they'd spent all these weeks talking about this idea of bringing in an NFL head coach and how that would sort of shake up the program. But when you actually think about the execution of that, it's such a complicated thing. Um, so I, you know, that's not to say it was due from the start, but this is also, as we know now, all the time in these coaching searches, this is a deal now where the AD ties their fate to the success of that coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Callahan's agent, Gary O'Hagan, and talking to him, you know, he did admit in, in the, the current day that they did not properly assess Nebraska. They looked at Nebraska as this power program that had won championships in the Big 12, in the Big 8, and had won national championships in recent years. And they thought, okay, hey, if we're looking for a college job, and Bill Callahan had the itch. He wanted to remain a college coach or a head coach. He had been a head coach for just two years in the NFL, and he, he didn't want to go back at that point in his career to being a coordinator or an offensive line coach. And he had those opportunities immediately in the NFL after being fired by Al Davis, but he wanted to be a head coach. He liked the um, the feeling of being a head coach and, and, and the, the control that that gave him. Um, so they looked at Nebraska. And it was it was it was on the surface a uh, a great job, but it wasn't a great fit for Bill Callahan. And I think I think that was that became very clear uh, early in his time at Nebraska in his first year when uh, they didn't go to a bowl game and they lost to Colorado at the end of the season to miss out on bowl eligibility. And the state was the entire state was was the fan base was up in arms about this. You have you you have not missed a bowl since the '60s, and here you are. Uh, doing it. And he said, Hey, it's one game. It's one season. And no, that just isn't how it goes. It isn't how it went. You can say now that's how it goes, but that isn't how it went at Nebraska in 2004. So, um, you know, he came into Lincoln on day 40 of the search a week before that on day, uh, you know, in the, in the thirties, they were having press conferences to uh, exert damage control. So, 
uh, yeah, this was a this was a a rushed marriage, and I don't want to say it was doomed from the start, but um, there were things that were going to have to. Uh, I mean, you know, if they had lucky if, on this one, they were. I mean, they were just so awful in 07 that they got fired. If they'd been better, maybe it, it would have lasted longer. I mean, you know, it's like he brought good players in there. He brought Zach Taylor in there. Um, they were, you know, successful enough in in 06, right? I mean, so it's but. It, there's five there's and a, six were decent seasons. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, part of the thing that that Harvey Perlman pointed out to me that's just hard about this period, and like he felt like they made the right decision at the time, and you go by the information that you have. Um, but the the only like the only popular move that you can make, especially in two thousand three, um, is Tom Osborne coaching for an infinite number of years, right? Like that's I mean, so like if if that's not an option, then what what are what are they supposed to do at that period of time? Now there's certainly an argument for, and not we didn't write this piece to relitigate whether they should have fired Frank Solar or not, yes. obviously. Um, Cause that's, that's its own, that's its own hour long podcast, right? It's its own long conversation. But um, the thing that's tricky there is I, that I wonder after all the reporting on this um, and, and Harvey Perlman wondered it too. It's like, okay, we let him re- redo his staff in 03. Do you give him a, a few years to sort of get his own identity of his own program, a Solich there at Nebraska and, and sort of separate from the Osborne legacy a little bit, but um, maybe they just went into the market at the wrong time. I mean, I, I clearly they they went after the wrong people, but maybe this this job just they they you know going into it in 03 was just from a timing standpoint because all of this stuff comes down to timing, especially the people who said no. Yeah. Maybe they just sort of went 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 into this uh, you know blew it up at the wrong time and, and should have given Solich another year. But certainly Peterson should have had a much better plan if you're gonna you know take such a dramatic move. Well, I think in hindsight, I'm sure it's. It's really comparable in some ways to the situation with Iowa and Tom Davis in basketball, where he, you know, went to the Sweet 16 and gets pushed out. Um, and because of all these other years, they only went to the first round. And when you look at the the numbers that you guys put in the story, he was you know 16 and 12 over the previous 28 games. He was one and eight in the in that those two seasons against ranked opponents. And you're not coming. You're only four, five, six years away from being. Uh, champions and national champions uh, you have, which line. nobody was beating that Miami team, by the way. I mean, oh, that's not, that's yeah. not your fault. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> exactly. But, but, you know, against some of those other teams, and then you saw the rise of Kansas state with Bill Snyder, you saw, you know, in a couple of years later, you had Missouri and Kansas that were playing much better. Iowa state was even uh, threatening to go to the, the to the uh, big 12 North uh, winning the big 12 North. And then, but I think overall, that what he missed on this was uh, he had a lack of awareness of what people think of Nebraska, especially when you fire a coach who ultimately counting the interim game went won 10 games. And yeah. when you've got coaches going, wow, I, they fired a guy with 10, that won 10 games that two years removed from going to the national title game. I don't know about that. That's you're you're walking into where you have to either win the national title or bust, and and that's a. That, and they announced that at the start of the search, they said, you know, this is the best job in the country, and if you're you're not coming here to win national championships, then you you need not apply. Hmm. One quirky little nugget that I want to share at the end of this thing that ties together a number of the players in this search in this process, and I know you probably have a lot of Cincinnati Bengal fans that listen to the big the big. <laughs> the big football show. So an interesting, interesting fact here. So Mike Sherman turns down the job, stays with the green Bay Packers. Bill Callahan takes the job. Tim Cassidy 
the administrator from Texas A&M with the Nebraska ties who was connected to Houston Nutt and Mike Sherman doesn't know Bill Callahan, but because of his connections to Peterson, he gets an invitation to come interview with Callahan to be the top football administrator at Nebraska for Bill Callahan. And he gets that job. So a couple years later, Mike Sherman's daughter in Milwaukee is looking for a job in athletics and Tim Cassidy makes that connection so that Sarah Sherman, Mike's daughter, comes to Nebraska, works in the media relations office. This is where she meets Zach Taylor, the Nebraska quarterback recruit under Bill Callahan, who was a two-year starter. They go on to get married. Zach Taylor works for Mike Sherman with Texas A&M, with the Miami Dolphins, branches off on his own, gets a job with Sean McVay in the LA Rams because of those connections with Sherman and ends up as the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals today. So, so many degrees of separation. Then you know, Bill Callahan on, brought on Zach fronts. Taylor to Nebraska. So there, you can't say that whole tenure was, uh, you know, was a negative. I, I do have a trivia question for you here, Scott, because I, I, I tried this one on Mitch and it didn't go well earlier when we were working <laughs> on this. Okay. All right. If I, Nebraska, since they fired Frank Solich, what's the win percentage, if you had to guess, since firing Frank Solich? I'd say 60%. Pretty close, fifty-seven. Okay, very good. <laughs> so it was more than fifty-seven before they fired Frank Solich, I believe, in that that uh, that twenty-year period, right, Mitch? I don't I don't know what the number is. In the thirty-four years before Nebraska fired Frank Solich, it won thirty-one games more than any other program in college football. Oh, okay, so pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, so not like bad. Nine ninety-three point five. FM the Fox or something like that, you know, <laughs> that was the percent, but uh, no, they, uh, it, it, for those of us who remember the, the era, it was such a shocking moment. I thought when they fired Solich, this whole situation and, and really this is what people worry about. This is probably, I'll be honest with you. This is probably it, part it, of the reason why Iowa doesn't fire Kirk Ferentz. Well, and to be clear, Steve Peterson didn't go assassinate he's undefeated. Frank Solich on his own, right? I mean, he is undefeated. Yeah, I wouldn't fire him now. Um, <laughs> Steve Peterson wasn't like the one-man uh, decision that, that Frank Solich should go. There were definitely people around here, and the chancellor included, who felt it was time for a change. It's just... That sounds good in theory, but uh, you have to have a, a much better plan than Nebraska actually did uh, about what you think the future needs to be. And uh, you know, if you, if you get the if you get the right person, then it, then you had a great you had a great vision, and uh, and they did. Exactly. The plan cannot be good coaches will come find you. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You know, they're not knocking on your door. A lot of cautionary tales in this one, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking us way back to our younger days when, you know, Mitch had hair, mine, I had hair here. and I have, I have hair. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Max uh, did not have hair on his chin probably at that time. <laughs> but uh, and, yeah. Why did and, I admit that? And for all you legends and listeners and old Big 12 fans for tuning in, thanks so much again. And uh, we will talk to you again next week.